How would you grade this administration's response to the coronavirus? A D minus? <laughs> you know, we, we need leadership at the national level. Uh, we, we've lost two months almost now in terms of our national response. We have governors who are stepping up, luckily, but now we have 50 different homegrown state solutions instead of a national response. You know, if we were doing the things that the exemplar countries are doing, like Germany, we would be testing. We would be testing first healthcare workers and then the most vulnerable, and you'd be doing contact tracing. And we would be able to start thinking about slowly, slowly reopening places in society in safe and healthy ways. But we have a lack of a coordinated effort. That's just the truth across the United States. From Politico, this is Women Rule where we bring you real talk with women bosses. I'm Anna Palmer, senior Washington correspondent and co-author of the Politico Playbook. While Politico live events are canceled, we're having conversations with newsmakers over Zoom. And for today's bonus episode, I'm talking with Melinda Gates, the co-chair of the Gates Foundation. We discuss the ramifications of this global crisis on gender equality, her thoughts on the need to overhaul the caregiving system, and how the Gates Foundation is applying everything they've learned over the past 20 years to tackle COVID-19. Melinda, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Anna. You wrote an opinion piece this morning in the Washington Post about caregiving and how you believe both government and companies need to focus on caregiving solutions so that the country can safely reopen. What's your message to Washington about what policy lawmakers need to implement to, to do this? My message to Washington is we have to look at all employees as caregivers. We are caring for those at home. And this hidden cost that our economy is built on the back of is finally visible to all of us. And so Congress can act. We saw Congress act in one of the stimulus bills. They put in 10 days for paid sick days. That was a good start. I would call it a down payment, though, and I would say it doesn't go far enough because if you go out today, you're an essential worker, you're a nurse, you're working in a pharmacy filling prescriptions, if you're an essential worker and you are exposed to somebody with COVID, you're supposed to quarantine for 14 days for your own health and for those around you. So 10 days is a start, but that's not enough. And so I would say to Congress, we need you need to look at more paid sick days, more leave days for workers. This is hard to juggle your health and try and go back to work. And you can make p- more payments that will help people during these tough economic shocks that we're going to go through. You mentioned there obviously has been more bipartisanship that we've seen in Washington uh, kind of around the coronavirus and stimulus packages. But this issue, paid family leave, often breaks down on partisan lines with Democrats supporting it, Republicans uh, not supporting it. Uh, Are you optimistic that you're going to find some Republican allies this time around, that things are different? Yes, I am, (laughs) because we're seeing finally that something that we all like to not think about before, which is, you know, how does our how is our economy actually functioning? You know, you can't look anymore and say, oh, my gosh, nobody needs to care for our elderly or for our children. They're home right now. We are seeing them. We're all seeing them. So even somebody maybe who grew up, uh, let's say when the economy was in the 50s or the 60s, which was more traditional, the men went off to work, the women stayed home and cared for the kids. 
They're seeing when they go back to their districts, that's not the case. When they talk to their grandchildren and their children, that's not the case. They're seeing family struggle. And so I think this need of saying, hey, we, we've had a problem that's been broken, and now is our time to show leadership and to act, I think we're going to start to see more change. We also point to the private sector needing to step up its game and think more creatively. New unemployment numbers came out this morning. A total of, I mean, astounding. 33 million people are reported as being unemployed right now. With companies just focused on trying to keep their doors open, trying to keep people on the payroll, are you worried that these kinds of more creative policies won't be top of mind or won't be something that they're paying attention to? I think that's an old narrative. (laughs) I think that businesses need to say, If we want our employees to come back to work, we are going to have to address caregiving because you know what we're seeing? We're seeing as other economies begin to slowly open up who are dealing with the virus before we were, workers aren't feeling safe coming back. They're not feeling they can expose that underlying family member to a health condition they might get in the workforce. So guess what, business? You want to reopen? You want your employees to come back? You better realize they are caregivers of young children at home. School's out. It is. 47 states in the United States. It's out. Um, we're still talking about whether it's going to go back in the fall or not. You know, our our aging population, we're all trying to figure out how to care for them. So you need to do the right thing by your employees. I'm not sure you're going to get a choice because if you want your employees to return to work, they need to feel safe and healthy for themselves, but for everybody around them in their family and their community. I want to take a step back. The coronavirus has impacted all of us in different ways, caregiving obviously being one of them. We are doing this interview virtually, for instance. <laughs> what is, uh, what's been the biggest change for you personally? Well, I mean, I think for us as a family, you know, it's just like everybody else, everything's changed, right? It feels like, you know, day in and day out, your whole life has changed. And so, yes, Bill and I are doing all of our meetings virtually now um, on video conferences. You know, I'm having to learn different platforms I might not have had to learn before. Um, Our son is unexpectedly home from college. So he and his sister, who's in high school, are both studying in the house. We're together more for, for some meals, which is actually nice with two kids at home again. But, you know, at the same time, I think the conversations in our house are are about our privilege and recognizing and, and talking. Our kids are talking about and we're talking about, you know, we're not struggling to put a meal on the table. And there are families around the United States who are definitely struggling already to put food on the table. What's one thing that keeps you up at night? Uh, what keeps me up at night are the families and the women I've met in Africa And to know the conditions that they already live in and to know that domestic violence is on the rise or to know that there isn't clean water in their community. So how will they keep their families safe when they can't hand wash, when five people live in one small room? That keeps me up at night quite a lot because I've met a lot of amazing people in in these many countries in Africa and my heart goes out to them. I think about them a lot. I mean, you have been involved in fighting the public health crises long before the coronavirus for for many, many years. How would you grade this administration's response to the coronavirus? A D minus? (laughs) (laughs) You know, we we need leadership at the national level. Uh, We've lost two months almost now in terms of our national response. We have governors who are stepping up, luckily, but now we have 50 different homegrown state solutions instead of a national response. 
you know, if we were doing the things that the exemplar countries are doing, like Germany, we would be testing. We would be testing first healthcare workers and then the most vulnerable, and you'd be doing contact tracing. And we would be able to start thinking about slowly, slowly reopening places in society in safe and healthy ways. But we have a lack of a coordinated effort. That's just the truth across the United States. How concerned are you about that? I mean, you have, as you said, 50 different kind of roadmaps. We're, you know, different states are doing different things. I live in D.C. We're in a different position than Virginia, than Maryland. Does that concern you in terms of having more people just you know, die or that this is not going to be going away as soon as it, as it could? It concerns me deeply. I mean, anytime you're talking about one more person dying of a disease they don't need to die from that because they got exposed in a way that is needless, that's deeply concerning to me. And I think you're going to see resurgence in places. There will be places that it's safe to open up slowly. And if we do things in the right ways, but I think you're going to see resurgence in places and then that can bounce back into communities. And who I'm most concerned about are the most vulnerable. I mean, we're seeing what's happening to people of color who are disproportionately affected or the health system was already weak in their state. And then they go in and, and there are no tests, right? So you know, that just shouldn't be in this country. And those are pieces that also keep me up at night. You bet. Your foundation has committed more than $300 million to the COVID-19 response since January. It's been about four months since then. Do you think you'll need to commit more resources to this effort? I think it's possible. And, you know, Bill and I are on this. Not, not every other day. We are on this issue every single day, most hours of the day. And the need is great. We're even taking money inside the foundation and the programmatic areas. And every one of those presidents of those areas and directors and their teams are looking at what money needs to get realigned in which ways um, so that we can figure out, you know, how do we help low-income students who don't have access to broadband, who don't yet have a computer in home, or maybe they have those two things, but their teacher is struggling to figure out how to teach online because he or she's never taught online before. And so we're looking at with our many, many, many partners, how can we help them adjust so they can support those teachers who are supporting those students? Is is there an area or two that you think more funding or more resources, whether it's from the you know the, your foundation or others, that really we should be thinking about in the next you know coming weeks and months? Well, I think absolutely we should be putting far more money into testing and tracing, having health workers who can go out and trace contacts, and then money to where we can quarantine in the United States. And then I would say on the global level, there's a huge need at the global level to make sure we're funding well a vaccine. The European leaders led a pledging event on Monday. They raised $7.4 million, uh, million, billion. But you know, still far more is needed for a vaccine, for medicines, for testing, because those countries are yet to come. And what we're just beginning to see in Africa, you're going to see a lot more food insecurity there and a lot more health issues. And when you have that there, it also bounces back into Europe, into the United States. So far more is needed for the international response, which the U.S. really has been lacking in its response completely um, on the international front. 
I want to get to our audience questions because we have a lot of them. Um, but first, I do want to talk to you. You and I think Bill were part of a conference call with House Democrats last week. Uh, Congress is starting to talk about the next stimulus plan. What do you think must be included in that? If you had one message to Congress. Vulnerable populations. They are the ones who are taking care of us. They are the essential workers. And part of those vulnerable population, a huge portion of them are women. There are 85% of our nursing force. There are 65% of our primary care force. They are the ones that are 10 times more likely to leave their job if somebody's sick in their family. So we need to protect them and think about how they protect all the rest of us. But if you don't do that, you're, we're not going to be able to get this economy back going and on cycle. And you're going to keep seeing more and more and more of, of this disease spreading over time. All right, we're going to hit a couple of our women rural community questions before we let you know, you go. I know we have a kind of a short amount of time together today, but the first question was, what effect has COVID-19 had on girls' education around the world? I know you do a lot of work on that with your foundation. Yeah, we are. In fact, I was just on a conference call today. We are really pushing our partners to get what we call disaggregated data so we can know the effect. But what we do know is from the Ebola crisis is that we saw a major downtick in girls being a, having access to voluntary family planning, which meant we got more teen pregnancy, which meant we had far fewer girls in school in the four top affected countries after Ebola. So we don't yet know what the effect is going to be on global education, but if it looks like Ebola, it's not going to be good. And that's why this data is so important. We have to collect it, even in the United States, we have to collect sex and race disaggregated data so we know where to act and where to intervene with supplies and medicines and money. If you don't get the data, we won't actually know what's going on. Well, this kind of tees off, this next audience question tees off of, of what we were just talking about, but what policies do you think lawmakers should consider to protect women and girls, especially from future pandemics? I think lawmakers should think about how do we get women in all kinds of leadership positions? How do we first take down the barriers that hold women back? Abuse, which we're seeing on the rise, domestic violence in the United States. So how do we take down the barriers and address domestic violence and abuse? How do we take down the barrier of caregiving that keeps women fully out of the workforce and being able to reach their full potential? And then how do we accelerate women in leadership positions? Because when you have women and you have mixed groups of people with mixed points of view at a leadership table, they make different decisions and they invest on behalf of not just themselves, but everybody else. Because women see society. We see it fully as it fully is. And we see the burdens of caregiving and the loving part of caregiving that we want to do for our loved ones. And we see the need to work. And so we need to have women with seats at the table. I think one bright spot during this crisis has been the strong leadership from female world leaders. Elizabeth and I were talking about this before uh, you joined the conversation. And a majority of frontline workers, as you said, during this crisis are female. How do you think COVID-19 impacts the future of female leaders in the U.S. and globally? 
I think if we keep highlighting the examples of where strong female leadership is making a difference or men who have leadership qualities, but they're bringing forward, they're caring, their feminine selves. If we make that okay and we make that visible, people will start to realize, hey, if I'm a young girl or I'm a teenager, I can look up and see, gosh, I want to be like that strong female leader. I want to be like Nancy Pelosi. I want to be like Chancellor Merkel. I want to be like Jacinda Ardern, the prime minister of New Zealand. Women can lead. And so making that more visible and so girls have these role models with different types of female leadership, then I think women will aspire to it and say, I know I can do that. And it's not just that I look up and see, oh, male leadership. So maybe that's a job that maybe just males hold. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, this is our last audience question, and then we'll, we'll kind of wrap up pretty quickly. But I, I, I thought this was important given your uh, your piece this morning. And the question was, what advice would you give business leaders who want to elevate the status of women in the workplace? You said earlier that it's a cop out. It's a it's a outmoded kind of concept that a crisis comes and you can't think about women and caregiving. So what what piece of advice would you have? I would say to business leaders, think about what you can do, right? You can have more flexible work hours so that women can help care for their loved ones. You can give um, credits for good child care for women and for families. You can Think about childcare on-site support. It's like this verboten topic we don't go near in the United States. But in my own backyard, Fred Hutchison Cancer Research Center, one of the top eminent cancer places in the country, they've had on-site daycare for over 15 years. And guess what? They get some of the best top female and male scientists in the world because they're supporting them as a whole family. And so I would say to business leaders, this is your time to reimagine what we want work to look like, what we want our lives to look like. And let's do some reimagining together. You can make this happen. All right. Well, unfortunately, we have the last question here, but this is what I'm asking basically everybody I'm talk to, talking to these days, a little bit for my, my own self uh, as well. But what's one thing you are going to do more of when we are kind of done with this stay at home period? I'm going to do more of what I do every morning right now, which is to get out and walk in my yard and have some time for quiet. Even on the cold, rainy days, I go outside and I use that first hour, not just outdoors and for myself, but also to reach out to two people that I know. It might be somebody who's a bit more isolated and and older. It might be somebody who's going through a bit of a hard time in their family life. But to take some time to do that first in the morning before I ever go near email or text or social media. (laughs) All right, that's our show. I'm Anna Palmer. My thanks to Melinda Gates for joining me. We have production help on this episode from Nirmal Malaykal. Our producer is Zach Stanton. Jenny Amant is our senior producer. And Irene Noguchi is our executive producer. Subscribe to Women Rule wherever you're listening. You can follow Politico's coverage of the coronavirus in our Politico nightly newsletter and in Politico Playbook. Thanks for listening and stay safe out there.